Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. I'm sitting here with Mark. How are you feeling, Mark? I feel like I'm at a concert, like scoping out the mosh pit and sizing everyone up. How are you feeling? Whoa. He's on the prowl. Uh, I feel <laughs> good. Uh, I feel like a night owl in the daytime. Usually yeah, I'm up pretty late. Yeah, I know. But usually I'm up pretty late and... Uh, but I keep working like these really long hours. So it's like, I just feel all discombobulated. I feel like I have jet lag without having jet lag. Nice. Um, I think I would do that if I didn't have like a schedule, like, like a eight to four, nine to five schedule. I think I would do my work. If I was asked to do the same amount of work, just in however many or whatever schedule I wanted, yeah. I'd probably do that too. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Like it's weird. Um, normal list uh, regular listeners of the podcast will know that i'm a i'm a freelancer at this point um not working for any specific company and it's weird because yeah sometimes i'm like doing something and i'm like i think i'm just gonna do that work at like midnight (laughs) (laughs) the only problem is you actually have to have the discipline to do it at midnight (laughs) yeah that Uh, midnight cup of coffee or whatever yeah i'm actually in one of those situations (laughs) tonight uh So last week you invented a new game. It was called What If. And this week, instead of Mark preparing the What If, I prepare the What If. If you're a new listener of the podcast, we usually, you know, play a little game before we start getting into our shitty book reports. Um, Mark read a book this week or has read a book in the past that he's going to talk about this week. Uh, I'm going to talk about one book, but neither of us knows which one it is. Um, So let's play another round of What If, Mark. Does that sound good? Yeah, you got one through 20 or different numbers? I got one through 10. I'm a little bit lazier than you, but I figured we only (laughs) got through about 10 last time. So I got one through 10. So basically, the basic rules of the game are uh, that I have two columns in front of me, uh, and each of them goes to 10, and Mark is going to say two numbers, and the result of those numbers is a topic of conversation. Yeah, an author or a scenario. (laughs) <laughs> an author in a scenario so, right and I'm, i'll keep track of the ones i pick so i don't do any repeats but oh i was gonna right. do that for you but if you want to be the bookkeeper then by all means i got it all right <laughs> all right i'm gonna go with uh eight and nine for uh, 89 okay in, eight and nine here. oh man this one is fucking good uh <laughs> So George George R. R. Martin, he's the guy who wrote like Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire, you know, those fantasy books, mm-hmm. popular HBO series I'm sure you're familiar with. What if George R. R. Martin wrote a manual for how to train police officers? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I can work with this. I have not, I haven't read his books. I've seen okay. some of his shows. Yeah. If he wrote a manual... For police officers. You know the general vibe of George <laughs> yes. Martin. Um, there would be a lot of characters in it somehow. <laughs> it would be like Officer Officer Smith, Officer Brown, Officer Willis. Like just a shitload of characters. And they would all be trying to somehow become like sergeant or police chief <laughs> like that's what the rules are about it's about becoming the like the number one yeah the rule officer. the rule of being a police officer is to ascend <laughs> yes <laughs> what's the that's, highest what's the highest it's it's uh i think it's like you would be like commissioner you commissioner would be like of like a city or something yeah 
the the chief and then the commissioner and then shout out to like, shout out to Brooklyn Nine Nine. The only reason why I know that <laughs> is the show Brooklyn Nine Nine. So it would also somehow be um, erotic, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there'd be some uh, weird. There'd be some uh, I don't know submission moves or something. I, I think it. that it, I, I think know. that it would just be a, a police manual, but the way to solve every conflict is to just kill everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. So it would just be like a police manual and then it's like what happens if, you know, the suspect is unarmed? It's like kill them. <laughs> yeah, the red traffic stop. Yeah, what if it's a child? Kill them. <laughs> Apprehend. Like he'd yeah. he'd use some crazy words like that and he'd have his yeah. own terms. All right, that, that was would a, be it would also that would be 20 volumes as well. Yes, it would be it would take it would take you, you know, 3 years to to get out of the police academy. Uh be okay. waiting for him to give you the last you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, he still hasn't written like one of the last manuals. <laughs> How you graduate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um okay, so next right. one, give me two numbers. That was good. Um uh, 1 6 Say one and six. Oh, this one's pretty interesting. So one of our one of the authors we've talked about a few times in the podcast, Carl Ova Nosgard. I recently learned that that's how you say his name. It's like Ove Ova. or Ova. Carl Ova Nosgard. What if he wrote the pamphlets that you collect at rest stops? <laughs> you know, like the little like the vacation things. Like he'd stop at a rest stop. And the pamphlets about, you know, Virginia or whatever are by Carl. Nosgaard. Okay. It would it would be called I, I got this. It would be called like the horror of travel. And it would be like the road, the desolate road continues for miles and your baby brother is poking you and he says he he's not touching you. But he is. <laughs> and, and it would just go on. It would be like this, <laughs> it would be this, it would Endless. be more than a pamphlet. It'd be more than a pamphlet. Every it detail would, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of road travel. Yeah. Are, are we there yet? And and father says, we, we are not there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But for some reason, you really need to read it, even though yeah. it's mundane bullshit. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Nice. But that would have the, it would have to be also specific to all these tourist spots and all this stuff, yeah. and it'd go into painful detail and Turn it wouldn't in describe the road to you. Yeah, it, after it the giant ball you. of yarn. Yeah, exactly. It, it wouldn't describe to you like what you're actually going to. It would describe his personal experience at that Cor place. Correct. Yes, there's a diner on Route 66 where me and my wife got divorced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, geez. Okay, so next up, next two numbers. All right, uh, three and ten. Three and ten. Oh, this is pretty, this is kind of interesting. So what if Mark Twain, Mark Twain, wrote the little blurbs that you read under, uh, mod in a modern art museum? So there's like a giant, mo like, modern art sculpture, and then there's like that little blurb about it. So what if Mark Twain wrote those? Oh, I mean, he's he would be really good if working with that limitation of just having a little blurb. Mm -hmm. And it would definitely be some sharp little witty, probably a jab, probably yeah. a criticism. I feel like he would make fun of the art as much as he was describing it. Yeah, yeah. It would be like you have to read it a few times to realize that he's making fun of it. 
Right. And maybe the the artist would be like, oh, he, he like I'm, you know, I'm so happy of, of what you wrote. Uh, thank you so much. And they wouldn't pick <laughs> up on him being like, you know, it's it's uh, right, 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 or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like he like a satire that only uh, will only you'll only understand after researching for a few years or something. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, pretty succinct not not too much to come out of that one that probably the uh blurbs under modern art i mean what can you really say mark twain yeah i think yeah he would definitely be disapproving of modern art though i think <laughs> subtly subtly disapproving but still fulfilling his function all right next up. uh my next numbers um hands on the steering wheel at 10 and 2 whoa okay 10 and 2 Oh, this is this could this could actually happen, which is kind of fascinating. But uh, if Margaret Atwood wrote an okay, advice, co- yeah, wrote an advice column in GQ. <laughs> hmm. So she has a weekly advice column in GQ magazine, which is typically a men's magazine. It's supposed to be Gentleman's Quarterly. Yeah, so I think it would be probably very instructive on how to not be a dickhead <laughs> yeah here's how to not be a fuckboy um, yeah a modern man <laughs> like <laughs> it, it might that might be something they should look into actually yeah you're for, right that yeah could she, be something. she could write like yeah she could you know invade gq and and write about how to like properly you know treat women like human beings yeah yeah i think that one that should just happen probably yeah we we just started something and if anyone from gq is listening if this if this pops up <laughs> after this podcast then then we have something really serious on our hands it would right. be like at atwood or something right yes at they could come up with yeah. a name for it yeah i wonder if margaret atwood's on twitter i feel like she might be i think i've heard of that probably should at, look that atwood up. uh so next one, five seven. Five. It's not how tall I am. And seven. Oh, this is interesting. So Agatha Christie, famous okay. crime novelist. Agatha Christie, mystery novelist, I guess. Uh, what if she wrote the little stories that are like the about us stories on the side of hot sauce? <laughs> You know how you have a bottle of hot sauce and it's like the family story of like how they got into making hot sauce? Oh geez, yeah. <laughs> That's a tough one. Well, she'd have to she'd have to make it into a, like a mystery somehow. Yeah. And we never found out what the ingredients were, but right. we kept making it. Or yeah, had... there there are no there's no ingredients listed because it's like you're supposed to cryptically kind of like solve the puzzle from the about us. Yeah, or no one knew how those hot peppers got there. Right. <laughs> it was just <laughs> I need to read I think I've read Agatha Christie as some sort of like requirement or in like a short story form or something but spoiler alert for the podcast cuz I I think I that's one of those things you know like reading Madame Bovary where it's like I think I should probably read some of that just the it's always referenced you know Yeah yeah and it's it, always, it always I I know some about it from like just from references like oh the, like the plot point is that there's like a you know, loose floorboard or something. And mm-hmm. that's where the clues are. Right. Yeah. Cool. So next up. Okay. Uh, two and eight. 
two and eight. Okay, this is pretty. This is a pretty open ended one. So what if Ernest Hemingway? What if Hemingway wrote blog posts, and what would his blog's focus be? Oh, he would be all over the place. He would be travel and uh, hunting, fishing. He'd be like the outdoorsman kind of stuff. Like a like a manly travel blog. Yeah, yeah, it would be like that. Yeah, and yeah, that would work. <laughs> that, that, would, that would I would work. read. I would read him. I mean, you're basically already reading his travelogue when you're reading his novels because it's like I've spent some time bullfighting in Spain. I better write a novel about it or whatever. Um, but I think it would be cool if it was more. I wonder if there is some like a collection of like Hemingway like letters or stories that are specific to like location, like like a travelogue type of thing. Yeah. Um... I don't know, if but not, he, like, you could probably make one. <laughs> I mean, it's cynical, but it, it might be completely insufferable if he was like had to cater to an internet audience or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But would Hemingway ever to bow bad. to the what? It, would he? Have, maybe it would just be one of those blogs that it's like so brilliant. You know, you know they're out there. There's blogs out there that are probably like incredible, but no one they don't have any connections and they're completely unpublished. Yeah, definitely. So maybe it would gotta be gotta like uncover that. those. All right, next up, next two. All right, uh, four and five. Four and five. Oh man, this one is like this is like barely even worth talking about but no 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 no. four and five four and five (laughs) keep it so what if jk rowling wrote a children's book (laughs) okay so jk well what yeah i mean well that this begs the question (laughs) is is harry potter a children's book or is it something Mm. more is it something more where's the line with young adult and children's yeah like what? Like what if? What if J.K. Rowling wrote like truly a children's book? Because I don't think what she has done like, that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like a picture book, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a picture book. Twenty pages or something. <laughs> um, I think Dude, she could picture... probably do that with her existing work. Yeah, she could definitely. I mean, that's Converted, probably hap- yeah. that's probably happening right now. She's probably you know she she publishes under different names too. Maybe she's publishing under a different name. What was that? She. Yeah. What was that book that she did under a different name? It was called like the Vacancy or something like that. Yeah. She published under too. a different name. She published under a different name, and it still like did well. And then what they did was they were like, "Oh, now that they found out that's your pen name, we're just going to publish it as J.K. Rowling and make like ten times as much money." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Next two. That one was a little bit of a dud, but that's that's them's the bricks. All right. Six one. Six one. Oh, dude, this is you can go on this for the whole podcast. What if what if John Kennedy Tool wrote a New Testament to the Bible? Another New Testament. <laughs> um it would be neon. Yes, and it would be neon. It would probably I mean uh oh, I, I I can't even think of that actually. What, it would be hilarious. It would be hilarious. He was, yeah, he would be converting the original stories or just going off on his own. No, this is there's now a third thing that oh, people gotcha. worship. 
it's 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 a it's a established religion based around the third testament of written by john kennedy tool would you join that religion <laughs> after uh i'd at least read it dude i'd attend a few services if yeah. there was if there was a bible out there written by john kennedy tool and then there were like churches like where people were like dissecting it and like quoting from it. I'd, I'd, I'd check it out. I think. <laughs> Damn. That, that one's too hard for me to wrap my head around. Dude. But yeah, I mean, I'm all for it. <laughs> oh, I'm all for it too. Well, another thing that I think about too, this is, this gets off track from the game, but that's what it's for is like, do you ever think about in the afterlife? Like, uh, sometimes I think about the afterlife as something that sort of like only benefits me, like in sort of like a narcissistic way. Like what if you could go, uh, I mean, I guess that's what this game is called. What if, what if you could like in the afterlife be like, why don't you give me, you know, a version of the Bible that would have been written by John Kennedy tool. Like what if you could make requests like that? You know, give me yeah. g- give me Jaws, but Scorsese was the director. <laughs> yeah, just uh, personal heaven. Yeah, just any request that you can possibly imagine. I think that that would be good stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you need a genie as well. You could right do that that way. That would be an interesting way to use your three wishes. Just wish for weird pop culture combinations. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be like, I wish Katsuhiro Otomo directed Steamboat Willie <laughs> with yeah. Mickey Mouse. Uh, okay, give me the next two. All right, seven, four. Seven, four. Ooh, this There's is like pretty two good. two more combos left. What if, what if Roll Dahl self-published erotica on Amazon? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Roald Dahl, famous children's author, oh. starts writing erotica on Amazon. He would change the BFG acronym to something else. Ooh. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I actually think there's there's actually a weird factoid about Roald Dahl that he did write some adult, th- not like erotica, not like, you know, pornography in any sense of the word but Roald Dahl did write like poems and limericks and I think that there's even a published book with illustrations of like adult humor like about like sex and stuff yeah I think I I think I have one of those maybe it's called like skin or something yeah I'm not mixing it up with something else the only time I interacted with it like in a bookstore in New York City where it was like this used bookstore and then it was like, oh, Roald Dahl and it was all this like inappropriate shit. And I was like, is this like some sort of gag book or something? <laughs> like I couldn't <laughs> couldn't wrap my head around it. But then, of course, I Googled it. And, uh, it's a real fact. OK, r- to yeah, wrap up, I think to wrap- it, if he was uh, self-published, though, it, he would have like a 100 book series about. The same topics he dealt dealt with, but it would just be erotic, like giants, witches, uh, giant peaches, all that shit. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, To wrap up this round of what if, give me the last two. Nine three, I believe, is the last one. Nine three. I could actually see this. We should look up if this actually has happened. But Jack London, famous author. I guess he wasn't alive at the time. But Jack London, famous author. What if he wrote jokes or comics in Playboy? So some people say that they subscribe to Playboy the magazine for the articles. Um, what if Jack London was in there? 
What have you he read? Definitely. Uh, I've read a uh, White Fang Call of the Wild. Have you read Assassination Bureau? No, I've I've heard all about that one, dude. That is on your list, like right now, like top of the list. Because it, first of all, it's easy. You can read it in like two days, and it's an incredible book. Yeah, I don't know what he would write about for a Playboy article, though. He would, he would. No, 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 no article. He's writing the jokes and comics. He's only oh, in hmm. in the jokes and comics section. That doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> <laughs> I, he wasn't known to be very funny. Some funny I stuff happens in assassination. No, he's not very funny. It would, yeah, he would probably he, of his other he would be he would be submitting to Playboy and just keep getting rejected. They would just keep sending him things, being like, "You're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Stop writing to us about dogs in the wilderness." Yeah, it would just be about it, your connection and yeah. uh, survival and being. He was probably all about like manliness and stuff or whatever, but I don't know. Maybe. I don't think I don't think he'd be a good joke writer. No, Jack London failed Playboy joke writer. Yeah. So yeah. that 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 was another round of what if. Uh, it's a fun game to play. You could really play it with anybody. You could play it at parties or over the phone or. However you feel like doing it. But yeah, one if. Uh, it's a game Mark invented last week. So um, this is episode 30, an even number. That means I'm going first, right, Mark? Yes. Okay, excellent. All right, so I'm going to start I'm gonna start mine in Mark style. Sometimes I admire the way that you start yours, where you start with a question. So <laughs> my question to you would be what is the oldest book that you've read but also intensely enjoyed so something that was like you're like damn i'm surprised this was so long ago oh uh that one's easy for me i i it might be one of the oldest books ever i actually really liked the uh the epic of gilgamesh okay yeah which yeah, is gilgamesh. you know written on tablets and you know right was uncomplete and all that and but yeah that right. thing's sick it's like uh, basically dragon ball z yeah you know what's funny <laughs> is that it is i think you've mentioned that on the podcast before but it is there are old stories like that that are like dragon ball z because i once took a course in college called northern european history and um i had this great professor who would lecture everything from memory he was like incredible and i had um we read some of the old Irish legends. Like there's one called the Toyn, which is which translates mm -hmm. to the bull and stuff like that. And it is like the the original heroes were like these people who were like just ungodly men. And it is like Dragon Ball Z where they keep getting like punched through mountains and stuff like that. And yeah, just like what? Yeah, just like can do whatever. No, yeah. there were no limits. No limits. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Pretty interesting how that's sort of, you know how they say like the virgin birth is like a universal story throughout history, but you know, obviously yeah. Goku, Goku exists throughout eternity. Yeah, he's very universal too. Right, so I would say, even though you bring up a good point that some of those old legends are, are really fantastic, I would say one of the oldest books that I've read and also intensely enjoyed is something that we've mentioned on the podcast before, but I decided to do a deep dive into it this week. And I am talking about... Uh, a, a set of novels from originally published in 1532. What do you think about that? 1532, 
is, uh, and one of my most admired authors, Francois Rabelais, Gargantuan Pantagruel. So I wanted nice. to do a deep a deep dive. I know that you've read this a little bit. Have you read? I've it a read some bit? of it. I I, I yeah. haven't. I haven't. You know. Given it's it not really. Question. It's not really something that you read cover to cover. Full disclosure: I am not a Francois Rabelais um, scholar who has read all of his books cover to cover, mainly because in 2019 that might be. That would be like the real reading challenge. You know how they say like, oh, like to read all of Proust is such a challenge or even even some people, you know, like to read all of Game of Thrones or something like that is like somewhat challenging. But to read Francois Rabelais cover to cover, you would have to be a special, special uh, <laughs> person, I think. Yeah. But um, let me just dive in a little bit to to who Rabelais is. Like I said, these were published in the 16th century all the way back in 1532. Um, but who is Francois Rabelais? I would say that first and foremost, he's somebody who is definitely a, a polymath. Um, and that word, you know, it basically means someone who is like multiply, multiple disciplinary, like throughout their life. But, and I feel like they were a little bit more common maybe in Rabelais' time where it's like this guy, if you read his biography, it's like, did he have any free time? You know, he was translating things. He was a French Renaissance writer and physician. He was a monk and a Greek scholar, you know, like his hobbies were other people's life you know, affirming careers and everything like that. He was a really amazing yeah. person. Um, and I think I'll just read kind of like the first paragraph from Wikipedia just to give you a sense of, of who Rabelais was. So he was born, you know, he's someone who's so old, they're not even exactly sure when he was born. But he was <laughs> born between 1483 and 1494, and he died in 1553. Um and he was a French Renaissance writer, physician, Renaissance humanist, monk, and Greek scholar. He's historically been regarded as a writer of fantasy, satire, the grotesque, body jokes, and songs. He's best known for Gargantua and Pantagruel, which I'm reporting on today. And because of his little literary power and historical performance, Western literary critics can consider him to be one of the greatest writers of world literature and among the creators of modern European writing. Uh, and there actually is a term that is coined after him. If you've ever seen someone say something that something is Rabelaisian, it means <laughs> that it's of gross, robust humor, extravagance of caricature, or bold naturalism. And that's actually defined in the in the Webster Dictionary. That's what Rabelaisian means. So this guy was so good that he had a word named after him. And my thing that I always say to everyone about Rabelais, if they don't know about him, and uh, let me know if you agree, Mark, to use the word Rabelaisian, I would say Monty Python is Rabelaisian. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when I was first reading Rabelais, I was just so blown away because it was like, I'm reading this thing from the 1500s. And I think I have a pretty common introduction to Rabelais. And I think we know about them for the same reason. Why do you, Why did you know about them at first, Mark? Uh... I think it was a gentle giant. Yes. Yes. Song. So, yeah. So there is a very, there's an extremely nerdy seventies prog rock band called gentle giant. And if you ever get into any sort of progressive, if you're, you know, a young guy looking to get into the nerdiest music you could possibly find, uh, you know, there's this band called gentle giant. And, and when you really research their, some of their song lyrics and some of their album art, it's like all these giants and all these weird things. And these guys were 
uh, what they call pantagruelists, which that's like a fan of being of gargantuan pantagruel. And uh, so the main works in Rabelais' life, and here we are with a new, there's a new word to slap down into the podcast. I learned that a pentology is a series of five. So last time I was talking about the Sea of Fertility Tetralogy, which is a series of four. A pentology is a series of five. Rabelais wrote five books concerning the genealogy of two giants, one named Gargantua and one named Pantagruel. And Gargantua and Pantagruel, they just get into really wacky ass situations. Um, something that I really like about Rabelais' world is that, first of all, he obviously doesn't take himself too seriously. For somebody who was writing in the 1500s, he is hilarious. Um, a quote that came from uh, one of my film professors, which I really loved, um, was, you know, he would show us films and he would say, uh, you know, some people, some young people believe that wit was invented in the 90s, <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> when people, when people can't take, you know, black and white movies seriously or older books and stuff like that. But when you read uh, Rabelais, it really is a bridge into a world because when you think of the 1500s, I would, you know, you would almost assume like, I'm not going to understand anything or like nothing is going to be, you know, what it was or anything like that. Obviously, these are being translated from French, but he's hilarious. I mean, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. in if you can take uh, scatological humor about, you know, shit and piss and getting kicked in the balls and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I think, in a, you know, there was an episode uh probably i don't know how many episodes ago i read uh styles from nowhere i read like a, a couple paragraphs from him and it was you know mm -hmm. perfect it was it was exactly that it was like a piss joke like right away or something it was right. grotesque and it, it was funny yeah that was yeah like turning to any page is just like you know ridiculous humor something that you wouldn't really expect for a 16th century monk to be writing about he was controversial in his time you know like when these books came out a lot of people i think it says somewhere um on wikipedia you know the college de la sorbonne which has been around in france for you know what seems like all of eternity they they stigmatized it as obscene. It was a social climate that was going towards religious oppression in something called the French Wars of Religion. So this guy had balls as big as the balls that he joked about in uh, in Gargantua and Pantagruel. Another famous path to learning about him is that some of his um, much later about, you know, like literally 300 years later, which is hard to wrap your head around, is that uh, Gustave Doré, who is a famous um, illustrator, did an illustrated version of Gargantua and Pantagruel. But um, I feel like yeah, I'm talking... One of, those, one of those has to be the... Uh background to this episode right yes okay yeah. i'll i will try to make i will make a note of that i'll make sure that it's a gustav Doré um illustration but you know he did these beautiful illustrations um I'm, i feel like i'm talking too much about raveling and i need to talk about the books a little bit these books are ridiculous these books are insane these books are oh my god i can't believe what i'm reading someone wrote this down in the 1500s and one of the one of the favorite features one of my favorite features of this book is something that i've talked about before on the podcast as well is that it has those really awesome old school chapter titles like in Voltaire where it's like you know the chapter title is um let me just turn to any random one another great thing about Gargantia and Pantagruel is that um it is 
completely free. You know, this thing is so old that you can go on, you know, Kindle, your Kindle or whatever. You can go on Project Gutenberg and just have it and you can read the whole thing. I would say that it's actually probably a pretty good bathroom book, like to just open up to any page. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but Aren't yeah, I chapter's mean, really short, too. Yeah, the chapters are super short, super short. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, they have chapter titles like, Why Monks Are the Outcasts of the World and Wherefore Some Have Bigger Noses Than Others. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, let's just pick another one out at random. How Pantagruel Met with a Limousine Who Too Effectively Did Counterfeit the French Language. Um, How Pantagruel Came to Paris and stuff like that. and one of the things that I really love about Rabelais is, um, you know, it can get a little bit tiresome. Obviously, he's from a different era than us, but he does those massive lists of kind of like really funny things. And one of my favorite things that he does that I have, you know, worshipped him for ever since is he likes to make up fanciful book titles books that are within his book that are not that were never real. So, for instance, in Book two, part seven, how Pantagruel came to Paris, one of the, and the choice of his books at the library at St. Victor is just a massive list of random book titles that, that Rabelais made up. So I'm just going to go at random in here and say, okay, th- this book is titled The Bald Arse or Peeled Breach of the Widows or the, muddling of, the Muttering of the Pitiful Wretches. Or a book titled The History of the Hobgoblins. Or another book titled The Winings of Kajatan. Or The Ingrained Rogue. And then he even goes on to make up different people who wrote the book. So it's like The Merciless Cormorant by Hoxanidno the Jew. (laughs) You know, like, he's just so... He's just... He makes such inappropriate jokes, but also just... It's something that I feel like is a real window into... And I think, honestly, a comfort, too, to, like, when you're reading these books, how ridiculous they are, how funny he makes fun of politicians and kings and queens and stuff like that. And I seriously did, even though it's, like, not something that you can read cover to cover, might not be something that you relate to 100%. I seriously did have a moment when I was first reading Gargantua and Pantacle where I was like, the world is chaos, and it always has been. You know what I mean? Like, you, you can take comfort in the idea that, you know if you live in like a political time that you're uncomfortable with, or if like something shitty is happening to you or whatever, it's like, listen, there's always been these kind of tropes and different things that are just so silly and funny. And, you know, Rabelais is just someone to really turn to, to just, I think he's a role model of kind of like, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take literature too seriously. And, you know, He's just so inappropriate. Like, let's read a little poem that I found here. And also one of my favorite things about Gargantua and Pantagruel is that there really are no rules. Like, did you have you ever noticed, Mark, when you're reading it, is that they don't have an exact size as giants? Like yeah, in, yeah, they're kind of like, all over the place. Like in one chapter, they'll be in a courtroom, like in a courthouse, like, you know, debating about something with the other lawyers and they're a little bit bigger than everyone else. And then in another chapter, it will be like there's a whole village living inside of his teeth. Yeah, they won't <laughs> you know? fit places and stuff. But you I, know, I was yeah. going to say, uh, I was going to say um, that listing of the books, like that sort of thing. It's kind of mm-hmm. like 
it's the precursor to like the throwaway jokes and like the Simpsons and stuff or like when, whenever Troy McClure comes on and he's like, you'll know, you know me from like, blah, 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 yeah, that, or whatever. It's yeah, that's like exactly, that. that's exactly why I love it. Cause there's just so many, like there's even hints of that, even though, you know, Larry David, I don't think would ever acknowledge any sort of connection to the intellectual literary world. There are hints of that in things like Seinfeld where, you know, like there's a whole slew of things in Seinfeld that are made up movie titles. You know, they, they yeah, have, yeah. you know, like when they go to the movies and it's, and you know, they're trying to the see, posters. yeah, the post, there's one called like sack lunch in Seinfeld yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, these like fiction, these worlds within worlds. And it's like, you know, it's not anything new. It was something Rabelais was doing so long ago. Um, but to give you a small flavor of just how inappropriate uh, a monk from the 16th century can be, uh, here's a little poem. In shitting yesterday, I did know, the cess I to my arse did owe. The smell was such came from that slunk that I was with it all bestunk. Oh, had but then some brave signor brought her to me, I waited for, in shitting. I would have cleft her water gap and joined it close to my flip-flap. Well, while she had with her fingers guarded my foul knock and throw all bemerded in shitting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, obviously you, you I know just picture that that's that's we're all doing a thing about hamilton or something like, exactly yeah, exactly it's like that. it's just so inspiring i think it's just so it's like such a cool little thing to discover of like oh yeah this is going to be so stupid and you know i went on to research them online from gentle giant and then eventually once your eyes are open to Rabelais, have you not seen him in many bookstores i have where you kind of you're you're going through the bargain bin and it's like oh yeah Rabelais, yeah, yeah. So I, I will I have a copy. Yeah, I, I have a copy. I actually have two really nice bound copies in mind. Even if you can get your hands on an illustrated version with the Gustav door, you're going to have even more fun because he's he's just those illustrations are just so epic and so good. Yeah. So um, I'll wrap up my shitty book report here with a one star review. This is James from Goodreads. And he says, if there were a negative rating to this system, this would be minus three stars. Never have I encountered more scatological humor than this. And this was written not by an eight-year-old, but a man of, sophist of sophistication. It's absurd. If you like reading about flatulence, defecation, and peeing in all its most obscene forms, you'll enjoy this crap, pun intended. I find no redeeming value at all in this work, and why the French, so noble a people, find his work a classic is beyond me. <laughs> so james you didn't get gargantuan prantagruel you're not into villagers drowning in piss um but you know what i'm not on your side no <laughs> negative three stars negative three stars <laughs> if only stealing stars from other books um okay so to start mine, it's kind of weird because I, I had to bite my tongue earlier because it's something that we we talked about earlier in this episode. But I have a little really? bit of a story. Yeah. So it, so initially, I started out, you know, I read a book. I was going to kind of step on your turf a little bit with the book I chose. Ooh. Um, I mean, maybe I would have. I'll let you be the, the judge. Okay. So, you know, Trevor, Trevor's the big film guy. Um, what can you tell me about the films of a certain... Uh, uh, Jean Cocteau. 
Oh, I don't know if that would be stepping into my world a little bit. I might even get Cocteau confused with someone else, but he's a he's sort of like an OG documentarian of like exploring the world, correct? He's like the uh, avant-garde French filmmaker. I don't know that much about him. No, then then I'm getting him completely confused with somebody else. I don't really know too much about his films. Okay, he did like the what's called like the Orpheus trilogy or something. French okay. filmmaker. But you know, okay. I see here's here's how little I know. I didn't know much about him. I assumed mm. that he was like you know, mm. worshipped in in film school. Uh heard the name a lot. Not really a true cinephile, but I was I was intrigued by the aura around his book uh Les Enfants Terribles. Okay. Yeah, Les Enfants Talib is like a is a very common film saying. And I think now that my education is coming back to me, is John Cocteau, is he famous for the shot where he's where they slice someone's eye with a razor? Possibly. I, I, I think he, he might be shit like that. It's time for Google, but <laughs> so Les Enfants Terribles, that's that was a book and also a movie. He didn't direct the movie, but the, mm-hmm. he like wrote it. Uh, so I read that book. It's a nice, it's a short little book. I tried to come up with what I would talk about here and I tried a little bit and then I just kind of decided I didn't really want to, like it didn't grab my attention in that way where I felt like I could talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I would just be doing it just to do it. Like I read something. So instead I just went back into the, uh, back in time to the history of <laughs> my reading, picked right. another book that I felt, you know, I could actually be passionate about. Uh, and so today, I've decided to do one that I know we both read. Uh, I definitely alluded to it before, alluded to it uh, 25 minutes ago. Uh, but I was going to see if you could guess what it is uh, off some clues I got here. Uh, so it's published in 1989. And feel free to guess at any point. Published in 89, after you were born, but before I was born. Um, it was written 35 years before that. Hmm. It shares a name with an Arcade Fire album. Was made uh. into a movie in 1995 starring uh, Drake Bell from Drake and Josh. Shit. I feel like it I should this, know it by now. It was this author's second published novel, but technically his first. Oh, okay. We're talking about the Neon Bible, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Previously mentioned on the podcast, but yeah, definitely yeah. a good. And that was that that was from randomness. From randomness, yes. My numbers went with John Kennedy Tool and a, a Bible, you know, a New Testament exactly. to the Bible. That was kind of crazy. So I was uh, trying not to talk about it at that point. <laughs> that so would have been the perfect we, segue if that was like the last one or something. The last one, and I was yeah. going first. That would have yeah. been perfect, but uh, can't always be. So we, you know, we talk about his other novel. We talk about a Confederacy of Dunces every episode, pretty much. Right. Well, um, why wouldn't you? Yes, but you know, that's just because we we are leading up to covering it in length. You know, one of us is going to do it someday. But I I believe that you know a Neon Bible episode is the first real step towards that. Correct. Yes. I agree. <laughs> so this is a book that I. I'm of the opinion that it could easily be taught in schools or that, you know, it it, it would be a good thing to, to, to have uh, high school students read. We should One. sub it in for Madame Bovary. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be, I think it'd have a lot of fans or it'd be like a lot less complaining about reading it. 
Um, first of all, because, you know, it's a high quality book. It's a, it's a coming of age story about growing up in a small town. It's kind of, it's relatable. Uh, it's about, you know, growing up, discovering the reality, discovering reality and how disappointing it can be. Mm -hmm. And then two, because it was written by a high school student. It was, you know, written by a 16 year old kid. Uh, and you know, from, from his own words to an editor, uh, John Kennedy tool said the following. Uh, in 1954, when I was 16, I wrote a book called The Neon Bible, a grim adolescent sociological attack upon the hatreds caused by the various Calvinist religions in the South. And the fundamentalist mentality is one of the roots of what was happening in Alabama, etc. The book, of course, was bad, but I sent it off a couple times anyway. Now, since I figure we're eventually going to cover John Kennedy Toole in the Dunces episode, I, mm -hmm. I only want to talk about his life up to the age of 16. Interesting. Because you know? uh, we'll do the rest later. Okay. So he, he was born in New Orleans in 1937. His dad was a car salesman. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, you know, all known accounts, as he had a very overbearing mother. Um, he had a very difficult relationship with her. But she, you know, she encouraged him at a young age to pursue stage performance and all sorts of different stuff, comic impressions. And she pushed him in a lot of different directions. Um, and, you know, at the same time, though, she apparently had like she had final say on who he associated with, who he hung out with, who his friends were, what what cousins he could play with, you know, that sort of thing. Um, she was very she was very cultured and it would seem like from my research that she might have just wanted so much for him that it became like this isolating thing or just, you know, not what a childhood should really be like. Mm -hmm. And anyway, uh, John, who he went by Ken, taken from his middle name, like as a kid, he went by Ken apparently. Yeah, he went by Ken until like up until the last few months of his life where he insisted on being called John. Hmm. I didn't know that before, but, um, but yeah, uh, at a very young age, he was very smart. He skipped first grade. He did a bunch of performance stuff. Like he led, he led, uh, children's variety shows. He was like the main performer in all these variety shows in New Orleans. And he did like modeling for advertisements and newspapers. He did comic impersonations. Like I, like I mentioned before. So he mostly kind of had like a, a sort of strained child star family life that seems to happen so much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once he got to high school, he sort of dropped the performance stuff and he moved to the typical high school overachiever kind of life, like school newspaper editor, yearbook club, debate club. He had a job delivering newspapers, you know, National Merit Scholarship, National Honor Society, <laughs> voted something uh, called the most intelligent senior boy wow in, uh, in high school well at least they got it right he was probably the smartest guy there yeah and you know so because of all that he was awarded a full scholarship to uh, tulane university and you know it was right around that time senior year of high school that he wrote the neon bible and apparently mm -hmm. it was only over a few months time and it was uh i've seen conflicting reports on whether it was just to write a book or as it was for like a literary contest or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so now I ask, what do you remember about this book? 
I don't remember every detail. I don't. Yeah, it's like I remember that it's it's sort of like a. It is the like you said. It is like the perfect sort of like high school narrative because it's about a boy who's trying to make it work with a girl. Correct. That's part of it. It's part of it, but then he kind of, he, like, basically something happens, which I can't remember, but I do remember at the end of the book, like, he kind of has to, like, accept, like, a difficult truth. Something happens where he, like, becomes, like, more mature. Yeah. And he, and he has there, to accept that he's, like, not being, like, accepted by the girl. That's right. part of it. So this yeah. might be just you picking up on different things, um, mm. just because of what stuck out to you. But, like... There's a there's a lot to this book, but it's like uh, it's it's chopped into specific chapters that are all like kind of loosely connected, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think you're picking up on maybe two two of them that stuck out to you. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of talk about it and then kind of give it what I call a, a super distillation, where I'm gonna just chop it up into just you know a couple sentences and then try and tell the whole sort of story. Maybe it'll uh, remind you some stuff, but some, some more about it, you know, it's all, it's all told from the first person perspective from a boy named Dave and it's 10 chapters, 10 memories from his life. And his, the narrative voice in this book is just like perfectly, it's like this perfectly calculated calibrated force that just sustains through the whole work. And this is probably like the most impressive part of it to me like it's very consistent and he just seems to know what he was going for and executed it really well and like all of it of course considering you know his age mm-hmm. um so it's a short work but yeah like i said i'm going to try and uh distill it out of order and with spoilers because you know who cares uh will <laughs> be sort of vague but um here here it goes uh, David riding on the train to get away from the shitty southern town. The eccentric Aunt May moves in with Dave and his parents. Uh, David doesn't fit in with uh, local boys with, um, you know, the sons of his father's co-workers. Uh, their townspeople are all bigoted. Uh, it's around the Great Depression. Dad loses his job. Family moves from middle class to lower class. They downsize to an older house. Uh, there's uh, domestic violence. Father is drafted to fight in World War II. Hmm. Uh, there's a traveling preacher who discusses the immor- immorality of dancing, kind of like a flash dance. Right. Um, there's a local preacher who has a tacky, massive neon Bible, and uh, he's the rival of the traveling preacher. Um, the father's killed in Italy in the war. Uh, his mother, you know, loses herself because of it. The coffin shows up. Uh, Dave, David tries to help the family working under the limitations of being just a 15 year old kid. Uh, there's the universal experience of a first love and a heartbreak. Hmm. Um, Aunt May is tempted by the bright city lights and doesn't look back. Excess, excessively violent Tarantino style ending. Uh, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's you know you know what you know what's up. It's it's like that. <laughs> um, David's back on the train, and that's the book. Interesting. I don't remember the that's excessive the, violence. 
Ooh, yeah, that's the the very end. Um, yeah, that's that's what I won't probably spoil. Is it something? I feel like first of all, I need to read this book again because I've like forgotten almost all of it, and it actually is in my possession because I wouldn't leave a Kennedy tool behind. And it's very um, brief. It's super you can read brief. It in a weekend. Is there something going on where, like, at the end of the book, like he's on top of the hill and everyone's like going down the hill? Um, no. At the end Dude, of the book, I he's, he's back. At the end of the book, he's back. He's back to the first chapter, pretty much. Okay. He's on the yeah, train there's leaving. A, there's a lot packed in there that I didn't that I didn't remember. <laughs> yeah, and there's a definite reason why he's leaving, and you know it's not very hopeful um yeah but you yeah i recommend reading it again it's 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 awesome and you know when i first read this years ago i don't own it i have it on kindle it's mm. like uh when i've had a bought a kindle years and years ago oh i have an I, edition i really like my edition nice it's it's only like 130 pages maybe right it's a pretty thin but so yeah back when i first read it i highlighted a few sh- few sections and I just wanted to like sight unseen read from them here and just try and see, I guess, what sections I liked back then, you know, whenever I read it the first time. Nice. All right. This is from page 89. In the spring, the prettiest place in the valley was the hills. Up along the path, all the wildflowers were beginning to come out. If there was snow that winter, the ground would be damp and warm. We did have a lot of snow that year that made it hard to get down the path to school but now the only thing that would tell you it had been there was the wet mud. All the pines looked greener than they had for a long time. The warm air smelled strong of them, much stronger than in town. All the birds were back too, and they sang and flew from pine to pine and dropped down to the ground and flew back up again. Sometimes I would see a broken egg along the path that fell from a nest up in the pines, and I thought what a fine bird it might have been. Sometimes a little baby bird would fall out too, and I saw it there, dead and blue. I didn't like to see dead animals. I never hunted like plenty of people in the valley did. Some just shot at a bird to test their aim. Spring was really the time I was glad we lived in the hills. Everything was moving. The breeze made the pines sway and the little animals played in the grass and low bushes. Sometimes a rabbit would run across the cinders in our front yard. Everything was moving that evening I was walking home. It made you feel you weren't alone on the path. Every step I made, something would move. Down in the wet mud, I could see the holes that the worms made and the bigger holes of some bugs. I wondered what it would be like to live down in the wet mud with the water going by you every time it rained and your home liable to be knocked in when someone stepped on it or else be trapped when someone just closed the opening and you couldn't get out. I wondered what happened to bugs that were just trapped and if they starved to death. I wondered what it would be like to starve to death. Page 91. I looked back at the telegram and thought of how funny it was that a few black letters on some yellow paper could make people feel the way it made mother feel. I thought what it would do if the black letters were just changed around a little to read something else, anything. And then finally, page 132. Hmm. When I got my mind steady, I began to think about what had happened. Sitting on the high stool behind the counter, I looked around the store and out into the bright street. I wondered where Jo Lynn was, if she was home. Then I thought of myself and how dumb I was. I'd made a fool out of myself the night we went out, and it didn't even matter to her. The night up in the new houses didn't matter. Kissing her didn't matter either. She didn't know what I thought when I saw the moon on her face, or when my arm touched hers in the movie, or even when I heard her walk into the drugstore a little while before. She didn't know she was the only thing I ever wanted to have that I thought I'd get. 
Hmm. That's what that, that, that story. That, that must have stood out to me. That must have been the passage that stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really good. Isn't it unfair that he was like 16? Yeah. Yeah. Just take a second, you know, think of what you were even capable of writing when you were that old. Mm-hmm. I don't like, I would cringe uh, my, you know, I would break the bones in my face cringing reading, you know, some 16 year old. Stop yeah, I know. well, that's that, that's something I would request in the afterlife. Give me a novel that I would have written when I was sixteen. Be horrible. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Give me a good. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but what would you say about comparisons between this book and Dunce's? Well, it's sort of it's interesting because Dunce's. It has the Confederacy of Dunces has almost like that classic, um, you know how we've talked about how authors in late stage career, they have like a, like a, a brain explosion, you know, where, where it's like Joyce is like, oh, I'm going to, you know, write, you know, this intense novel about one thing or whatever, or, or a multifaceted sort like we were talking about, I think it was in the, uh, Madame Bovary episode with Gustave Flaubert, where he kind of like at the end of his life started like this massive undertaking. And in a weird way, I think when I compare the Neon Bible to Confederacy of Dunces, it's like Confederacy of Dunces was his like mind explosion. Yeah. Whereas Neon Bible is like, I'm going to write like like a quote unquote normal book, even though he's just like insanely talented. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's very much like a... uh... It's, it reads like a Flannery O'Connor story. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, any of these things is impressive considering, you know, what, what the reality of it was. But, um, yeah, um, I, I mean, as far as comparing the two, I would say like Neon Bible is a more rural thing. It lacks like the bustling. It's still in New Orleans. It's still like around New Orleans, but it, it lacks the bustling New Orleans of, of Confederacy mm-hmm. of Dunces where it's, you know, you can f- it's so vivid. Um, I'd say it's a lot calmer to a degree. It's an easy, it's obviously right. easier language to digest. Um, it would be so fun to read both, dunces in, if you went to new Orleans specifically only to read dunces, that would be so fun. Just hanging out by that Ignatius statue. Yeah. I've been to it. Brag. Um, <laughs> uh, so I would, I would say, I would say they, they both, both the books kind of, they kind of ooze with sadness a little bit, you know. I mean, Neon Bible is like very openly kind of sad, and and right. Dunces is sad only, you know, when you think about it in terms of the background of background knowledge of of the author, right? Um, but also, you know, if you think about Ignatius as what you what you get when you kind of survive maybe a very specific type of trauma or, you know, ignoring your problems and shortcomings through a hyper-focus on, on academia or or something, you know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of tragic. That's tragic in its own right. Yeah. I would say Ignatius Riley is a tragic, a modern sort of tragic, like, you know, figure. Yeah. He doesn't meet his downfall, but he probably, you know, deserves it. Uh, But to write, you know, to write, this book at 16 is just incredible. Like, of course there's flaws. It's not as if he had like that much of a life to draw on, but it's crazy how on point some of his observations are, you know, observations on just fundamental things in like the category of, you know, life. Uh, it's really impressive. 
but there's just a cynical, like a super cynical edge to it that like I know is possible at that age, but how do you vocalize it that well? Like, right. You're, you're supposed to just, you know, feel that way, but not know how to express yourself. Uh, but you know, he was mature enough at that age to just, you know, be able to write about maturity and innocence and, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. What the only other author that I really have a reference for for doing something that young would be The Outsiders, S.E. Hinton. She wrote The Outsiders. Was... She was 16 when she wrote The Outsiders. What? Yeah, dude. Uh, I didn't know that. It's fucked up. <laughs> we need an episode on that. Yeah, we do. But, but I'm saying that's like, it's such a rarity, you know, for somebody to, because what is an author other than someone who's like kind of like trying to capture something accurately you know from the inside to the outside and it's and it's obviously a rarity for someone so young to write something you know publishable but also just you know i guess the best ones find find their way to the top yeah um so i got a few few more things to say about this you know part, part of the power behind the book is getting to think like how would his career have gone if this caught on or, you know, if, if he just caught on in general, like what other books were there that we could never read, you know, that would be another thing where you uh, get to wish that in the afterlife or whatever. But it's also, you know, I, I thought I was, when I was preparing for this, I thought about it a little bit of a different way. I was thinking it's one of those scenarios where you'd like to go back in time and just be some kind of influence and force, you know, force some big publisher to read his stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of up there on my personal list of uh, time travel stuff is like alongside if you, saving Cliff, Cliff Burton. Metallica. Yeah. So if you went back in the, in the Stephen King scenario of 11, 22, 63, you would beeline it for Louisiana and find John Kennedy tool. <laughs> uh, it would be on my list. It's a good thing to be on a list. It's good. Yeah. Get, you, uh, get the manuscript, you know, Get there before he, uh, you know, commits suicide. Get the manuscript. Just force whoever, <laughs> Penguin, any of those big publishers to give it a chance. But anyway, you know, Neon Bible, it's a very, it's a significant literary achievement based on a few different things. And uh, I was going to say, I dare you to find like a comparable work from like a 15, 16 year old, but you already did that. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know if they are comparable in the sense that I think the Neon Bible is a step further to the interior life where, you know, like The Outsiders is a beautiful book, but it may be concerned more with like, you know, it's it's a great book, but it's about plot and it's about, you know, the feelings that get generated in you from reading the different things about the outsiders. Whereas like, you know, the neon Bible is like, I can't believe he wrote that, you know, like from, from, <laughs> from the interior of, of his mind. Yeah. The only thing I remember about the outsiders is going to see like a play in middle school that was like put on by a high school and they like were smoking fake cigarettes. And I was like, Whoa, oh <laughs> like my in, in God. yeah. Um, so yeah, if you, if any of our listeners know of any other, cause I'm sure it's out there are aware of any other, you know, sort of thing that fits that description, like a significant kind of literary achievement by a teenager, you know, I'd like to read it. Um, and to close this out, 
uh, a one-star review from Goodreads. User uh, Pahina says, bought this for 15 Philippine pesos, about 33 US cents. And I would say to that, you know, that's a pretty good deal. And just please reconsider your rating. Yeah, it's pretty good. So she gave it a one star and then just talked about how it cost her 33 cents. (laughs) Yep. Please reconsider reading the Neon Bible. Very good. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR, the podcast, no spaces. Uh, You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, uh, collaboration opportunities, whatever you're feeling. Uh, And see you next time. Peace.